to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I'm Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy. I am your host. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about safe withdrawal rates. Uh, There's a lot of literature about safe withdrawal rates, which essentially is the answer to the question, I'm retired, I have a big big lump of money, what percentage can I take out every year and not run out of money. Uh, and so I'm going to give you sort of the um, uh, a, a, my, my take on that when inflation actually matters. Now, obviously, we know that in inflation matters. Uh, this is also, by the way, I should say this is our next to last podcast of the year. Um, as with last year, I'm going to do next week when the CPI comes out, I'll do my usual post-CPI uh, summary podcast and uh, and then take a couple of weeks off to uh, regenerate and figure out what to talk about for next year. Um, but uh, so today is the last non-CPI podcast of the year. And so I want to first wish everybody a happy holiday season, Merry Christmas, uh, and uh, happy Hanukkah to those of you who celebrate. And uh, now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing $3 billion ETF shop, democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market-neutral equity, long-short managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their, simpl- their website at simplify.us. You can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And there's quite a few of them out there now. I will also, as normal, we'll start with a trivia question. And this is a uh, this is a finance and an investment management related question. In 1974, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, uh, more prosaically known as ERISA, was passed. And the question is, what auto company's pension plans collapse is generally credited with prompting ERISA? What auto company's pension fund, when it collapsed, kind of prompted the creation of ERISA in 1974? Um, Now, before I actually get into safe withdrawal rates, I do have one other uh, pending item or uh, old business, as they say. and that's that I got a, a listener question after last week's podcast. I think it's a very good listener question, and I, and I, I think it's worth addressing. Uh, the last episode was about college tuition inflation, and I talked about you know the quality adjustment of college tuition inflation and, and pointed out some kind of odd things about about college tuitions over time and and um, at any given point in time. And so um, listener JD writes, and I've kind of abbreviated, I've, I've shortened his email a little bit, but um, there's a lot of really good stuff here. What role does the, quote, money supply offered by the federal government in the form of uncollateralized student loans play into the equation? To me, being to JD, it intuitively explains quite a bit as the money supply to pay for college, particularly through debt, is a unique can of worms. Absent the federal government's interference, no individual business or underwriter in the world would assume the risk to lend a 17-year-old student with no collateral $50,000 per year for an art history degree with no clear plan 
on how to pay, pay, pay it back. Not only does this introduce significant price distortions, possibly explaining why any given product is the same price per credit hour, meaning both art history and economics are same price per credit hour, but it removes resistance from universities to raise prices in the future and, fund lux- and to fund luxury facilities to attract new student borrowers. Left to natural forces and no government financing intervention, would we not likely see supply and demand reprice the history versus economics degrees as relatively different and also the average price come down? That's the end of the quote from JD. And uh, this is a, a very insightful observation. Um, and it makes me a little sad that I didn't sort of point out myself. Um, and, uh, and, and JD, you're, you're exactly right. And in fact, there are a lot of people out there in private education and people trying to reform, uh, private education. Um, I've actually got a friend who I might try to get on this uh, podcast one of these days to talk about this. Um, but people who are trying to reform private education, one of the things that they want to, to reform is the, the, the notion that the college um, really uh, had the, the, the value of the degree and the cost of the degree are completely unrelated. And part of the reason they are unrelated is because of this, you know, as you point out, this sort of no strings attached debt. Um, that anybody can get, almost any credit quality can get it for almost any reason associated with higher education. And, um, and that's, as JD points out, a little crazy. So, so yes, in terms of the context and the, the sorts of things that I normally talk about on, in this podcast, that's kind of like the Fed printing money, but in this case, a very, sp- a very particular script that only applies to education. And so, yes, what you would expect to see happen over time is that the cost of, of education um, goes up because the money used to pay for education got relatively uh, cheaper. Uh, so that's a, 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 a very insightful observation. And, uh, you know, last week I talked about how, well, maybe some of the increase in in uh, intuition is illusory because we're not quality adjusting it very well. And I still think that, that, that that's probably, there's some of that going on. But also, no doubt, there is some part of what J.D. is talking about that, yes, making money available at, uh, for no strings attached is like a money supply increase in the general economy, and you'd expect to see the price of the thing uh, go up. Um, we see this in other, in other, uh, phenomena, other scenarios as well. You know, when you go through period, you know, if you look back at the, um, the real estate bubble in 2006 and seven, one of the things that happened was sort of these no doc loans kind of where you just had to state your income and people would give you a loan for 100% of the, the you know, supposed value of the property and the value of the property was sort of loosely analyzed because at the end of the day, you sort of felt like, you know, um, the price of the thing of, of those things were of the collateral was going to go up. Well, that isn't necessarily, you know, money from the fed being added, but it's a very specific, you know, the ability of 
home borrowers back in 06 and 07 to very easily borrow a tremendous amount of money on what otherwise is pretty crappy credit is one of the reasons that that bubble ended up bursting. Um, and it's one of the reasons it became a bubble in the first place. So you see, so that is very similar to the idea that if the government gives lots of money to to universities uh, indirectly through these borrowers, you expect the price of the goods to go up. Um, and in fact, the inflation hedge that we designed some years ago actually took that in, into account and sort of said that in in certain economic environments, you see more of that and 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 therefore tuition behaves in a certain way without going into into great detail here because it's not really relevant. Um, but then and then the last thing that JD said was that, you know, um, if there was no government financing intervention, you know, wouldn't you see supply and demand reprice not only overall education, but differentially price these these two things because now, if you have to pay for the economics degree and there's not free government money available, and so you've got to have a plan as to whether you're going to pay back economics or pay back art history, then you as the buyer are going to be much more willing to go and pay that price for an economics degree or a business degree or a marketing degree than you are versus, you know, for a history degree. And so if this is a true free market then you would expect that the price of a, an art history degree would go down. If you wanted to go and get an art history degree, it would be cheaper because, let's face it, you have fewer uh, financial opportunities, economic opportunities after you get that degree than you do if you have a marketing degree. Um, so, again, some ec education reformers have, have talked about sort of linking the cost of tuition – to or the repayment of it to your future salaries, right? So that it's sort of a guarantee from from the college. If the college doesn't educate you very well, and so you know you have a marketing degree, but you can't get a job in marketing, or you can't make any money in marketing, then it turns out that you don't have to pay back as much. Um, so there's all kinds of these, the, you know, the the thoughts that JD presented, and that frankly I should have presented last week. Um, those thoughts are are out there and are are in the reform world, the education reform world. And I think that it's, it's really, that's, they're really insightful. And so even though this was a 10 minute uh, digression, I think it was, it was um, well worth that time. So, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, JD, for the, for the listener question. I, I do read everything that people send me and um, the good ones and the bad ones. And I try to respond to everything, but today we're here to talk about safe withdrawal rates. Now, the uh, the four percent rule is what what it used to be called. Um, there was a, a Bengen B E N G E N wrote a paper in 1994 um, about the safe withdrawal rate, where he said, you know, four percent is the right number. And so the rule is, you take whatever your you know you so you retire this year, and whatever your pot of money is. Um, you take 4% of it for this year's withdrawal. Next year, you increase, and let's suppose that number is $20,000. Next year, you increase the $20,000 for whatever inflation is. And the next year after that, you increase it again for inflation and so on. And, and other than that first time, you never refer back to the balance that you have, okay? So it's, it's sort of a, you know, you figure out that initial withdrawal 
rate, and then and then you never look back at the pool of assets. And the question is, what percentage picked once uh, is the highest that you can sustain that guarantees that over a long period of time, I don't remember whether Bengen did 30 years or 25 years or 20 years, over a long period of time, you won't run out of money. The original nut that you have won't go to zero, assuming that you invest in you know, 60, 40 stocks and bonds. Uh, and the way that Bengen did that is he looked at, you know, again, I'm just going to say 30-year periods because I don't remember from the original research whether it was 30 years or what. But he looked at over, over all 30-year periods, uh, you know, going back a ways pre-war, and um, and said, okay, well, what would the portfolio have done? And if I took out 4% every year, let's go run it through and go figure out how much money, would I have had money at the end? And if the answer is no, that's a failure. If the answer is yes, it's, it's a success. And he figured out that, you know, through all the different seasons of, of asset markets, that 4% was pretty safe, that you were virtually guaranteed to have money at the end. Um, if you had a 1970s period or early 1980s period, didn't matter, you were still going to be able to survive. Now, how well you survived had a little bit to do with when you started taking withdrawals, but that's not terribly surprising. Um, the Trinity study, and I went to Trinity University, and, and uh, there were several professors at Trinity University who, who updated this uh, idea some years after that, a few years after that, um, and sort of broadened it and made a whole table and said, okay, suppose it wasn't 60-40, suppose it was 75-25, suppose it was 80-20, suppose it whatever. So for all these different mixes, let's also look back through history, figure out how that mix would have done, and then look at all the different withdrawal rates that we could have had so that you can, and they have a table that says, okay, if you chose this mix, then this withdrawal rate was acceptable. And again, the idea is that we're going to come up with one number which historically always worked um, or worked a you know, vast majority of the time. And they, they you know, calculated what the expected success rate is. So if you decided to take 80% out then your success rate was zero because there was no 25-year period where you didn't, you didn't not have money at the end. So I'm kind of a more useful way of looking at it than the 4% rule because you can sort of look at the mix that you want. Um, but, um, but there's you know, still some... There's sort of a common complaint that I have about both of these studies because they both used historical periods um, and, and only historical periods. So they, they, they took the rule and they said, okay, we start taking money out in 1968 for 30 years, following this rule, given what markets did, how did we do? Okay, how about 1969? They did it over and over again. Now, even if I wanted to live through the 70s again, um, that's not one of my options. Um, I do not have the option to live through the seventies again. And, um, and so the, the question of the direct relevance to me, um, is, is a reasonable question. I think moreover, both of these studies ended in the 1990s after there was a significant multiple expansion, 
um, in equities and decline in interest rates um, for bonds, which means that the more recent returns, the more recent windows were flattered by these great these great outcomes. And so basically, if you sort of think about the list of all the windows of time that they had from when they started to when they ended, um, you had more of those where there were bull markets in valuations than when there were bear markets in valuations. So the both studies were naturally biased to do better outcomes than if you had just sort of chosen randomly um, from from a distribution that had an equal number of bull markets and bear markets. And also, even in the 1970s, you know, an investor in the 70s had the advantage of high yields. One of the, the problems of these studies was that the two-sided effect of inflation, where inflation hurts assets but also increases the cost at retirement, is sort of glossed over. I mean, there were certainly periods where, um, uh, you know, in, in the 70s that were pretty miserable but they only lasted X number of years. And so we don't consider the possibility there could have been a 1970s that lasted two decades instead of one decade, which of course doesn't make any sense because you can't have a decade that lasts two decades. But you know what I'm saying, that kind of environment that lasted two whole decades instead of one decade. Um, so, so if a particular asset allocation and a particular withdrawal rule allowed you to navigate all of the past historical periods, then it, it gets a check mark. It's a good strategy. It's a, it's a safe withdrawal rate. But, but inflation is a really bad thing for a retirement portfolio because of this two-sided effect. And we only, we don't really have that many periods, uh, you know, in, in history, because we're not going back to the 1800s to do this. In the last hundred years, there's only been really one real bad inflation outcome. Um, and they didn't, and they weren't including all of that. So or they, weren't, they didn't go back to the, you know, the teens, the 19-teens, for example. So, so whatever rule you chose, and, you know, it actually kind of reminds me of back when I, I got started in this business and I, was, I worked for a technical analysis firm. And you'd, you'd design these new technical analysis, you know, strategies. And, and, the, and, you know, and you'd apply them to the equity market. And... There's the problem that you run into if you if you kind of don't know what you're doing in, in building these models is that any rule that got you out of the market in early October 1987 um, and then back into the market sometime in November of 1987 tended to outperform the market because you took one point out that was just like really bad and so you got you could you could come up with a very idiosyncratic strategy, which looked great because of that one little detail, and then didn't actually perform in reality. And in this case, we have something very similar where that one idiosyncratic point isn't a you know, one-day stock market crash. It's a one-decade thing that lasted you know, eight or 10 years of really bad asset returns um, and, and, and bad inflation, but it only lasted 10 years. And so, you know, if you're looking at if you were looking at a 12-year period, if you were saving for college or something like that, you got a much worse outcome. But because you were saving, because that that terrible 10-year period was followed by a 10-year period that was really really good for assets, it worked out okay. So, so anyway, so we have the, this any history you look at, 
if it comes from our actual history, is idiosyncratic. There's only one history we have to play with, right? So, um, anyway, so, so that's the problem with the historical sampling method. It can only sample from existing history, which uh, whatever you come up with, whatever the, the, the advice you get out of it, it's going to promote over-optimism based on the range of economic and investing environments actually observed, sort of a financial anthropic principle. Um, as an aside, I think that the right answer to all these things is, is personal liability-driven investing, and I've talked about that a little bit on this podcast in the distant past, I think. I mentioned it in my uh, my book, What's Wrong With Money. Um, um, I'll, I'll link in the notes to a paper that I wrote in, in uh, for the Society of Actuaries about personal liability-driven investing, which is basically um, uh, adaptive, uh, adapting your asset allocation to what your actual needs are. Retirement planning involves financing a relatively low-volatility stream of real and nominal expenses and financing that with a high-volatility stream of returns. I mean, your your low volatility stream of expenses is low volatility, assuming that you you finance you you buy insurance to cover like the crazy tails. But so you have this high volatility stream of returns, and you're trying to finance this low volatility stream of expenses. And the right answer is to, is to try to match those, and that's what liability driven investing is. And individuals can do something similar to that, but it's it's a more difficult answer. It's not something that you can do it yourself. And here, I'm, what I'm talking about is the 4% rule and simple withdrawal rate rules for the do-it-yourselfers. Anyway, in 2010 or 11, um, in that Society of Actuaries paper, actually, I guess I probably wrote it before that, um, I updated the Trinity study to incorporate inflation-linked bonds because that was the big problem here is that the biggest exposure you have as a retiree is inflation, and yet... We didn't include inflation-linked bonds in any in either of those studies because they only existed from 1997, and so to do that, you you know, I had to rely on a Monte Carlo method. I, you know, I couldn't rely on actual history because there just wasn't enough history if we start in 1997 to give any kind of answer, which of course was the reason it wasn't included originally. But but you can use Monte Carlo simulation to to generate paths that never happened in real life, but could have. And, you know, given the, given the existing correlations of stocks, bonds, inflation bonds, and, in, and inflation itself historically, you know, those historical, well, so one of, one of the things I did is given that correlation matrix and sort of expected returns, the first thing I did with the Monte Carlo simulation is sort of replicated what the Trinity Studies table looked like. And you can get very similar number, numbers using a Monte Carlo simulation, and that's kind of what tells you that the Monte Carlo simulation isn't, like, totally ridiculous. Because when you do compare it to history, it doesn't look like it's drawn from a totally different distribution. Anyway, um, and so then I extended that to include inflation-linked bonds and so on. Um, now, of course, those... You, know, you still have to assume something, and we have to assume these historical correlations, which could also change, which is why any withdrawal rule, and this is if you're an individual investor and you're a do-it-yourselfer, any withdrawal rule that you have um, that has survived the known unknowns, you need to still make it a little more conservative in order to weather the unknown unknowns like the correlation matrix shifts. 
Um, but at least if we directly address the inflation unknown, then we should be able to, to do better and come up with better answers. And it turns out that you do. Um, sort of a, a brief summary of what the, resu- what the study sort of showed is that as the concentration of tips in the portfolio increased, the probabilities of portfolio success, that means not running out of money, at low withdrawal rates increases. Okay, so, you know, if you were going to take 3% out before, and now you, you know, when you had 60-40, and now you add inflation-linked bonds to the mix, then you have a better chance of success with that 3% withdrawal rate. Um, and, but the probability of portfolio success at high withdrawal rates declines. So if you, you're going to withdraw at 8% and you have inflation-linked bonds, you have a lower probability of success. Now, why does that make sense? That makes sense because for any reasonable time horizon, if you have a 10% withdrawal rate, for example, it's only sustainable if you do two things. One, if you take extraordinary risks, you're 100% in equities and you've levered it, and you get lucky. So you draw the lucky part of the distribution. Then you can get a success. Whereas if you own only inflation-linked bonds and you have a 10% withdrawal rate, you cannot get portfolio success out of that. It just doesn't happen. And so the so you end up with these circumstances where if you really want a crazy high withdrawal rate, you just you know, you, you better just get really lucky. And that's a bad way to invest, by the way. Um, now, another little comment about all these studies is that when you look at these success rates of the original two studies, um, I actually did adjust for this and, and report it. When you look at a success rate and you see that a particular withdrawal strategy had a 90% success rate, meaning that in 90% of the historical periods, you didn't run out of money, um, what you what you don't know is, you know those fa- th- those studies don't distinguish between portfolios that fail towards the end of the planning period, twenty nine years into thirty years, or ones that failed spectacularly three years in, right? So each one is a portfolio failure, a non success, um, but you clearly prefer the one that got to twenty nine years. Now. Th- why is that sort of funny and interesting? Um, this again goes back to what that will tend to do is make you is push you if you want higher withdrawal rates. It will it will analytically push you into thinking that you have more portfolio success that you should have higher more a riskier portfolio. There was a two thousand and eight paper by uh, Scott Sharp and Watson that cited a Vanguard tool, which at the time recommended three different withdrawal rates based on whether or not your investor was conservative, moderate, or aggressive. If the conservative investor uh, should only have a 3.75% withdrawal rate. I'm sorry, an investor with a conservative equity allocation. A moderate, uh, moderately aggressive, uh, an investor with a moderately aggressive equity allocation should have a 4.75% withdrawal rate and an investor with an aggressive equity allocation should have a 5.25% withdrawal rate. So in other words, the response to a riskier asset mix was to create a higher cost spending mix. So, so if, 
if you're going to take a lot of risks in your portfolio, you should take more money out and spend, spend, you know, be more of a spendthrift. That's crazy, right? That makes no sense at all. You want to spend more money in retirement? Take really big risks. If you take really big risks, you know, and and then you should, then you can withdraw 5.25. If you don't take very big risks, you can only withdraw 3.75. And the reason that that happens is that, well, two reasons. One is they assumed, they, you know, if you look historically at historical equity returns, because all of these ended with high valuations, you know, you, you end up uh, flattering, you know, what a higher equity uh, allocation does to your returns. It's the same reason that, you know, all these real asset ETFs all have lots of equities in them because when you backtest it, putting equities in, it makes the returns look good. Um, but there's another, there's a, an additional quantitative point, which is that if you're, if you're only looking at portfolio success and a fail is anytime you got below zero, but it doesn't matter how far you got below zero or how quickly you got below zero, if you truncate all of the fails at zero, then it automatically skews the overall distribution to the upside. It's going to automatically recommend that you take more risk because more risk means you'll either get a, an even better outcome, a really great outcome, which isn't available if you take a low risk, or it'll just truncate a larger part of the bad distribution. Okay, so I would have been minus 10 million, but it doesn't matter. That's the same as zero because I'm counting success and failure. Uh, as opposed to, you know, minus $1 versus minus $10 million looks the same. And so, therefore, you should take really high-risk things, which makes me think of something else, which I won't get into now. But um, going back to how uh, municipalities uh, finance medical care um, liabilities. But anyway, um, anyhow, I don't think Vanguard still recommends that, but it was financial malpractice at the time. And it highlights that even the big guys can make mistakes in this sort of thing. Um, so what's sort of the conclusion here? I'm up to half an hour here, and that's quite long for one of my um, podcasts. You know, there is no sort of there is no sort of single answer. There is no four percent rule that applies to everybody. Again, I think the first answer is that the right answer is is liability driven. That based on how you spend and what you spend and how long you're going to be spending it you should have, and how much money you have saved too, I guess, but you should have an allocation that, that treats the, 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 uh, the stuff that you really need to have, you know, the assets that you really need to have for the really important part of your spending, that you, you know, like food, clothing, shelter, treats that as money that has to be around. Stuff that's more speculative, lots of vacations, things like that, gets matched up with assets that have more risk and so on. And so you have, so your asset mix is matched to what your liability is, what your spending pattern is. That's the right way to do it. But if you're a do-it-yourselfer, and that's quite a challenging way to do it, um, then then go and get one of these tables. Um, I would recommend mine. Again, I'm going to have a, a link in the, in the show notes, um, which will give you for those three asset classes – um, and you go look and you say, okay, for this time horizon, I think I used 25 years, that time horizon, okay, there's a probability of success and it looks like you, I always lasted or 90% of the time I lasted at least 22 years. Okay, that's a great mix for me. That's the mix I want. Here's the allocation. 
and then that's my that's my allocation, that's my withdrawal rate, and then go from there. But don't just take a a a four percent withdrawal rate because that's kind of a rule of thumb because the rule of thumb doesn't apply to necessarily anybody; just it applies on average, and nobody's average. Um, and um, and and don't fall into the trap of thinking that you can withdraw more because you are, have this high-risk mix that should, in quotes, should have a higher long-term return because that higher long-term return is not guaranteed. And, and moreover, even if in the really long run that allocation does really well, um, if it doesn't over the first 15 years, you're screwed. And so, you know, those higher-risk allocations – are a little bit of fool's gold. They're always going to look a little bit better, especially when run on historical periods, um, than than they really are. And you should understand that there's a quantitative reason for that, and it's because you truncate the zeros. Um, LDI is better because, um, among other reasons, reducing the mismatch between those assets and those liabilities means that your long-term planning doesn't depend as much on your assumptions about returns, variances, and correlations, because those errors only operate on the mismatch rather than on the whole asset base. Um, and moreover, when you do reduce that mismatch, it means that you behaviorally will tend to stick through bad market periods uh, better because it, you know, what's happening in your portfolio is more tightly related to what's happening in your life. Okay. So that was a little bit longer than my usual, but part of that is, uh, is thanks to JD, um, once again, for those, um, for, for the, for the letter that I, so I could clarify on the education stuff. Uh, and let, before I forget, um, the, uh, the answer to the trivia question, which is about ERISA. In 1974, ERISA, uh, the in Employee Retirement Income Security Act was passed. Uh, what auto company's pension fund failed, which is off, is usually attributed to being the precipitating factor uh, that created that led to the creation of ERISA? Now, your initial guess, of course, when you think about when you're of a cer- certain age anyway, and you think about the failure of an auto company, is you think about Chrysler, because in the early 80s, Chrysler failed. But of course, early 80s was too late. ERISA was already around. And by the way, the Chrysler pension fund didn't fail, um, probably partly because of ERISA. Um, But uh, it was actually the failure of the Studebaker Packard Company that, uh, and and the, the failure of the Studebaker Packard pension plan that led to the creation of ERISA. Check the show notes. I will have a link to my Society of Actuaries paper. And um, that's all for today's podcast. Uh, Please write if you have a question and uh, like and and refer other people to this here podcast. Contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. Visit enduringinvestments.com if you have an inflation challenge and defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>